Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano De Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. You know, they say you should never meet a hero. I get to do that today with my colleague Adriana. I get to meet somebody and have a chat with somebody who has been doing the serious work of thinking about the future of education for a long time and inspiring people like me in the great state of New South Wales and much more broadly in terms of what an education for the future might look like and how we might get there. Greg Whitby is the Executive Director of Catholic Education in the Diocese of Parramatta. He has a resume which is amazing. He's been acknowledged everywhere and now we get to talk to him on Game Changers. I'm so excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our series premium sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course. We are delighted to be partnering with the team at Open Parachute. If you want to teach mental health to your students, but you don't have time to become an expert, Open Parachute can help. Learn more at openparachute.com.au. Phil, I'm really excited to be, be with you and Greg today. And, and before we get into our conversation with Greg, how is, uh, how is the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy treating you today? Look, we're out on the streets earlier, Adriano, um, uh-huh. you know, protesting strongly because, you know, some people came by and overnight and they'd, uh, they'd trimmed the quinoa trees. So we weren't able to forage naturally <laughs> as we normally would. So, look, we're, we're going to put together an action group and uh, we're going to be storming Yarra City Council I can and, imagine. Uh, we're gonna, and we're going to be demanding action. Will you be taking your vegan Hessian bags with you? Oh, no, I can't go that far. I can't go that far. <laughs> Let's get on with it, mate. We'll get on with it. Enough of our nonsense, Greg. Greg, it's wonderful to have you uh, with us today on Series 6 of The Game Changers. Our theme this particular series is a new story, a human-centred, technology-enriched, people, place, planet, conscious, and intentionally purposeful learning ecosystem. And uh, we're going to kind of unpack that a little bit with you today. But uh, I'm going to ask you a question that we ask all of our Game Changers guests, and that is tell us a little bit about your story and how you have gotten to where you are today. Um, thanks very much. It's great to be, uh, be with you guys. It's uh, fantastic. I admire your work, and um, I like the way you're just trying to be a contributor that's what we need to a, a dialogue about a, a new and more sustainable narrative to carry us forward. Before I answer that, I just want to make one comment you know, um, with Phil. People say to me, you know, like I'm really good at looking at schools of the future. I, I'm actually not, I'm not interested in the schools of the future. I can't even guarantee that I'm going to get up tomorrow. I mean, I, you know, I, I hope I do, but the answer to tomorrow lies in today's work. I'm deeply, deeply focused on what happens today because what happens today will determine what happens tomorrow, not what, and we have so many, as you blokes know, so many I've been into schools of the future, classrooms of tomorrow, and yada, yada, yada. And they're probably people's best guess, but usually they're a bit of a sort of a, a mixture of a whole range of different things. And when you get to the end, you're, 
the status quo. So my focus is the change today, and I, I subscribe to, and I use it all the time, the Martin Luther King, the fierce urgency of the now. That's what drives me, and which is probably a good segue into uh, your question. Like, I was born at a very young age, um, yeah, um, and uh, been working hard ever since, but I started off um, by teaching in the government sector uh, in secondary schools. I did some teaching in primary schools before that on a part-time basis, but I soon realised that was too difficult and uh, wanted to move into secondary schools where you got periods off during the day. But um, I was an English history teacher. Hallelujah. Very, very involved in curriculum work at that time. You know, uh, I was particularly involved in the design of a new Australian curriculum for the history, history curriculum. Uh, that you know, success, success for um, um, governments into the future pulled apart. But anyway, be that as that's what happens. Um, so I've sort of bit of a grounding in you know, um, collaboration and trying to rethink curriculum design. And then I went through and become a studies coordinator, blah, 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 principal of school, working head office. And I find myself you know, washed up on the shores of Parramatta 16 years later um, doing a, a fabulous job, uh, in, and it's it, it's so exciting. Um, the best way I can answer your question is um, something that just happened to me personally. Last week, um, I got a visit in my office from a kid I taught in 1976, and he's actually one of the reasons I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, I taught him English. His name's Ron Hawkins. Um, out of the blue, about 10 years ago, he contacted me. He was a terrible student at school. Um, in fact, he got kicked out of a, a government school, if you can believe it. The principal made him persona non grata for the simple reason that he refused to bow down to the stupidity of what the schooling experience was like. You know? Yeah. It was that standardisation, one fits all. And this kid, and we all know them, just didn't fit the, the mould, so he used to play up. And I had him, you know, he was delight in the class anyway. So we got together, when I got the email 10 years ago, right out after for 30, you know, 20 years, haven't seen him. And he just said, look, if you're the guy that taught in this school, I just want to say thank you. You've changed my, you changed my life. Mm. You know, so eventually we got to meet and he'd signed the thing, um, Ryan Hawkins, lead consultant, virtual storage, Hitachi Systems, Hong Kong. I thought, Ron Hawkins is not the guy I remember. Anyway. So um, we got in touch and we've just been exchanging emails and eventually I got to Hong Kong to see him. And we went out to dinner one night and uh, when we finished, we were about to go and he got up and he said, look, I want to show you something. And uh, he had in his wallet the last page of an English assignment that he'd done on Lord of the Flies. And I'd written on it, you know, it's one thing to stand, stand in your own shoes and look at something, but it's very, you know, you, you, you're very conceited. And he said, that changed my life. He said, you were right. He said, you know, the reason he was aggressive, he realised in himself that, you know, he was conceited, that he thought he was always right, and he opened his mind up. So, anyway, he said, the other thing is, he said, I didn't even know what conceited meant. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, anyway, we've maintained the connection. He's he's a global warrior. He owns sugar mills in, in Singapore, and he's retired now. And he just tools around on his Harley. And he was in Melbourne. He sent me an email. I said, right, dropping. So he wrote up. And came up and we went out to lunch. It, it's the Ron Hawkinses of the world, every teacher, I mean, you've all got the same sort of story about the system doesn't 
do what it should do for every kid. That's what that's what drives me, and um, I'm I'm really pathological about the fact that every kid deserves the very best today, not tomorrow. And we're not going to find the answers in yesterday. And so it, it's a challenge to our thinking. I mean, we can talk about the change of the world and technology and, and all those sort of things, but there's a fundamental problem. We've just got the wrong model. You're not going to get any argument from us on that, Greg. You know, the, the whole premise of game changes is that the model is broken and that we need to move forward. Everything that you've been saying there, I mean, it's, it's funny. Yesterday, I was having a conversation with a bloke who I taught many years ago, similar sort of story to tell around that. And the longer you stay in education, the more that you have uh, those sorts of stories to tell. We would call it today's learning for tomorrow's world. That's how we would sum up all the sorts of things that you're talking about. I want, if I can, to focus you on learning for a moment. At the heart of your story is a situation where you've created a situation of belonging for that student, which has then led you to help develop that student to achieve his potential in the process. That's the doing of what is good and right. It's all wrapped up in there. It's a piece about character. And I bang on all about this sort of stuff all the time that you know, character is the reason why we do school and so on. Somewhere along the line, there has to be learning. We would argue that learning is grounded in deep relationships of character apprenticeship part of that as you said is having the courage as a teacher to say no to students that's not good enough you need to be able to move on but learning is much more than that what do you believe are the conditions that lead to deep and powerful learning in schools before i answer that again you, we, I, I disagree with your proposition i'm not having to go and try to be cute but you know we talk about you said you know you want every kid to reach their full potential I, that's rubbish I don't know your potential, and that's the mistake we made right from the very good. You know, we constructed around, well, I'm going to get you to achieve to your potential. What school does is actually stifle the potential, but it's a serious point, a jump off point to answer the, um, your question. So forget about it, because that's open-ended. Yeah. Any yeah. kids yeah. I've yeah, yeah, Greg, we, we, we would never talk about full potential. Yeah, no we would never talk about full potential. What we would say is that there's a pathway to excellence yeah, and you've yeah. got to get people on that pathway so that's that they right. can go and discover what their potential is. It's That's the self-determination yeah. thing. And, and one, of the critiques of the, one of the critiques of the work we, we do sometimes is that it doesn't encourage excellence. Well, it's far from it. It's the driver of excellence. But coming to your point, um, the, the problem I think that, that we have and the one we're trying to test is the ownership of the learning. At the moment, the adults own the learning because... You know, it's, it's so much a transactional process. They are the ones who get the syllabus documents. They're developed from outside of the school context. Um, and they're probably just the end result of the, the political forces and the social forces. And then it's given to teachers to deconstruct and, and, and to deliver. The last people considered in this are the, the students. So what we're trying to do and have now really deeply embedded across our system you know, we use the generic experiential learning, but um, it's giving ownership of the learning to the learner. And then that is the same for both the student and the, the, uh, the teacher. They have to take that responsibility and take responsibility for the learner. So the teacher's learning is being a better teacher and not having somebody come along and do it for them, which talks about a whole range of the professional learning and how we construct that but actually allowing the kids to negotiate their learning and making it more powerful. We've just finalised a religious education curriculum. We chucked out the old one completely and what we did, 
we went out and asked all our kids, what are the questions that you are concerned about? And it was amazing the response that came in. Everybody, a lot of people thought they'd be sort of low, low end types. So these were questions, really important questions about the nature of society. You can imagine what they were like. Huh? Why are people different? Why are there gains? Why? All these sorts of things. So we constructed around that, uh, and we're struggling. We don't want to call it an RE curriculum. We're trying to find a word um, that would help describe that. But it then allows the teachers to continuously work with and then organise the learning in, in, um, in, in collaboration and then working in teams. And that's the same sort of thing that we're trying to do with the, the standard curriculum, if you like. It's giving the ownership of the learning back to the student and then continuously learning to actually do it better, which then takes us into the tomorrow question. I suspect that possibly part of your answer to my next question is similar to what you've just shared with us there about the empowerment of young people and, and their ownership. But I just want to explore a little bit about the mission in the Parramatta Diocese in, in your particular mission about transforming schooling experience for every child and, and young person driven by a strong commitment. And that's, I'm hearing that come through as well around the construct of justice and equity. How, how do we create a learning ecosystem that is truly just and equitable for every Australian child and young person? Adriana, I wish I knew the answer to that question, but it's the it's the burner. Um, uh, again, I've made the public, you've, you've seen uh, in the stuff that I write. Yes. I'm, I'm concerned about literacy and numeracy, of, of course. They're very important and all the other things. The sad fact is the biggest problem we have in Australia and in the developed world is the equity issue. The gap's getting wider and wider and um, it's getting wider and wider because, you know, of, you know, of many reasons, but one of them is the nature of schooling. And when it's designed on a competitive, um, a competitive construct, which, you know, is the predominant curriculum model that we have uh, of, of sifting and sorting and ranking, um, it obviously benefits a lot of other um, more uh, students in different uh, environments. So that um, the, the answer that um, we have, we're trying to address is not seeing this as an, an, uh, all, all kids, schools are equal and they get the same level of resources. Mm -hmm. It's actually being proactive, but allowing to work through the community and build the community's um, resilience around those sorts of things. And it starts with them understanding then the nature of the learning and accepting where they accepting where they are and then being prepared to put different levels of resourcing in to um, into that space. Um, ultimately, you know, the nirvana around this is sort of it's such a touchy point as it comes because it has industrial implications. We would like to have the best teachers working with the highest need kids. So, I mean, that's a very concrete response to that question. You think of the, the issues that are involved in that, in terms of teachers' work and how we organise those sorts of things. We would like to be able to differentiate, differentiate you know, the intellectual property of teachers, an issue I probably want to come back to, but I might do with it now because it helps answer the question. Yeah, the pressure on teachers, you know, um, for teacher salaries, and you've, you've seen um, the Australian Education Union's come out and said we need a 15% pay rise. I mean, I, I don't know what, what's right or what's wrong in that, in, in picking a number. You can just pick a number. But the, the issue is we've got to stop paying teachers for 
industrial work on a production line, like the hours you work, the number of kids in your classroom and the number of release days you have, and pay them for their intellectual grunt, yep. right? So if you're, it goes back to earlier, that's why we want these experiential curriculums that are designed by the kids and the teachers that are then curated, reflected on, and then shared, um, you should be able then to get um, that intellectual property saying that's my work and that's my contribution and then we can start to talk about as everybody else in every other industry is paid now for their intellectual grant, not for turning up. And COVID shown you don't even need to turn up <laughs> at, at the workplace. So that again, then, I'm going to come back to the question, is allowing us to put the best possible resources with the best possible learning framework. And, and it might be that um, they have a, a different curriculum focus. So at the moment, they all have the same curriculum focus. So in, in those schools that have a different, it's not that you dumb it down or give them a free ride. It's all those sorts of issues that you have to deal with. Yeah. But we only deal with them when we deal with them in situation, in situ, in context, with really talented teachers and that we've taken a range of those things that hold them back out of the equation. And then, you know, it goes into the data analytics and the assessment regimes and the, the judgment regimes and all that sort of thing. All that has to be dealt with. I wish I had the one answer, Adriano, but, uh, you know. <laughs> no, I, I, think, I think what's really important with what you're sharing with us today is that education and schools are complex. It requires complex solutions to really wicked problems that 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 start at this very systems level. I mean, I've, I've been in a Catholic system for, for 27 years, and of course, I was part of an, an award structure. And that award structure is exactly what you you alluded to there. There's a lot of debate and conversation around, you know, how many hours you're going to do this, how many hours you have for professional learning. How, you know, everything's kind of this bean counted, and and we often miss why we exist in our experience here in Victoria, particularly last year being one of the only kind of jurisdictions in the world that was actually doing remote learning for 114 consecutive days, you know, uh, 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 really there'd be great case studies to be written about it. You know, we, we look, we really started to understand in a pronounced way, or maybe we were reminded about what, why schools exist, you know, and, and what the function of them are. And I'm interested now in just shifting this conversation a little bit to what aspects of school do you believe we should actually preserve in maybe 10 or 20 years' time? Richard Elmore, yeah, the yep. Grand Harvard educationist, he, he made this observation once. Uh, he was a journalist, got stuck in Iraq, did a conference presentation. So, look, what are you blakes on about? Like, teaching's easy. Everybody can uh, teach. It's, it's not rocket science. And Elmore said, thought from him, he said, you're right, it's not rocket science. It's actually much more complex. Yeah. And, and he's right because teaching, this comes back to one of these fundamental drivers of it. Teaching is a highly intellectual process. In the general community, we all know that say, you know, whatever, because people don't see what happened. And in many cases, we've dumbed it down by standardising it and having the one size fits all and you don't have to think about it and all that sort of stuff. As soon as you start messing with all those things, you start getting into the complexities and like the, the question that you just asked. And, you know, the way I don't talk about leadership as a, as a construct, for me, I'm just interested in leading and, and you're no good leading in the doing. And that takes me into the, your, your, your question. 
uh, when people start prognosticating about schools of the future and online and virtual and all that sort of thing, the, I want to come back, Phil said it right in his introduction, learning is a highly relational process. Mm -hmm. The COVID-19 thing has made one point so clear that I think it's going to come to light into the, how we do it into the future. We're dealing with COVID-19 predominantly as it's a medical thing. Well, of course, I, I grab, I get that. Secondly, it's an economic thing. So they're the two things that dominate the discourse. But what COVID-19 has shown us is that we are a society and we are interdependent on each other. So it's no longer good enough to say, well, I don't like vaccines and I'm going to live in your society. Well, okay, you don't like vaccines, we, we don't, you know, that's your choice, but you have to go and live in a cave somewhere. You know, you can't fly on my aeroplane because we're dependent. And Australia, um, being a robust democracy, has handled that and shown just how important that is because they've accepted, we've accepted the responsibility because we understand it's a relational process. And that's more most powerfully exhibited in the learning and teaching game when you're engaging minds and you're allowing people to, uh, to um, use their flexibility and build capacity and capability. When you talk like that, you know, the critic, you get the same critic critics that I get and saying, yeah. oh, look, it's all airy-fairy, kumbaya, mystical sort of stuff, and there's no rigor. Actually, this is more rigorous than the stuff they've been mm -hmm. So in the, you know, the things that are going to be important in the future are that there, there will need to be this relational thing maintained. Now, whether that's always physical or virtual, I think it's going to be played out as we're now learning how to do things differently in the workplace. So the good news is we have multiple opportunities because there are so many examples of it. But um, I can't sit here and say, oh, they're going to be here and they'll all be online and we'll all be doing this from somewhere and you know, basically we'll be in, in a bunker under the sea uh, here in Parramatta dictating and pulling levers. Um, you know, you can dream up all sorts of weird possibilities. But they're going to be staffed by, with understanding that it's, it's deeply challenging, it's relational, it's a collaborative, it's a community responsibility, and they will design and respond as we're re designing and responding to relationships now that we're doing at a national level, at a state level, a local level, and then into an international level. Uh, there are some pointers, um, you know, the, the fastest growing area, you, you know, as well as I do, the, um, you know, the, the online, the Pearsons of the world and the, the Indian company that I've just forgotten is the $8 billion um, uh, online learning uh, portal where you can get everything and uh, so they'll, they'll have a part to play. Will they be the replacement? I don't know if um, if we don't do anything, people like us don't do anything, and people who have the opportunity will get what we deserve, which will be really sad. Let's pause for a moment to remind our listeners about the important work of Open Parachute for Wellness in Schools. You know your students are struggling with their mental health, but you're not a trained therapist. Open Parachute can help you. Learn more at openparachute.com.au. Greg, Greg, um, I'm listening. I'm, I'm listening to you talking about a whole range of things here, I, I want to stitch a few things together. So 
you start by talking about the valuing of intellectual grunt. You talk about that notion, if we don't do something, then the world will happen to us rather than us doing some things. Your sense of purpose is deeply synthesised into everything that you do. And when you open your mouth, you say what you think. All of that is countercultural, as far as I can tell. Many teachers who we speak to, many educators who we speak to, will tell of the pressure to conform, the pressure to fit in, the pressure to preserve the status quo, and the pressure to do what they're told rather than to develop a sense of their leadership and, and, and a sense of what is right and, and what might be done as a result of that. How can we help people to... Now, we talk about the, taking the big step forward and up. How can we help encourage our colleagues in the profession to, to take that big step forward and up? It's probably the, the, the question I get most asked, and you're probably the same, and, you know, you get the general one, like, how, how can you do it? Or, you know, like I work in, a, the one I really gets me, I work in a school and I've got an authoritarian principle and all that. Okay, well, look, from my point of view, there's only one way to do this, and it's to start local and think global. Even in the darkest days of my teaching, when uh, I started in, in, the, in the government sector, and the deputy principal said to me, you will be a successful teacher if your class is quiet and I never see anybody from your class for discipline. <laughs> you, you, had, we, you, you had the same deputy that I did. <laughs> I would shut the door. Wasn't me. <laughs> that was the limit of in six years of my that's professional it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. With, uh, within that school. But once that door closed, I had a great degree of autonomy. Mm-hmm. And I think teachers forget that. You know, it, it's in the little things that they do. Like, and it's student agency is so critical in this. So you start to do those sorts of things. You get your, um, you, and you start to build a, a couple of friends around it, networks. Um, we've seen here um, some remark, what I think are remarkable strides. Um, when we, we first started this, we used to have nominated networks and those sort of things. Gradually, we've been on a slow release saying, well, uh, you know, just you take care of that. And the, the current, our school communities are coming together on like with like-minded things and doing things themselves. We have very little control and we have, we have no control things in place that say you, you will do that, you will do this, except um, an agreement that we've been working on that the predominant approach to learning and teaching here will be experiential. How you express that you know, is a local context. So the, the, the point of the exercise is, and I, I hold teachers in the highest regard, and we, I can't blame them for, you know, uh, and say it's their fault, but you know, we haven't had this change. The, the, we face the same issue with the, the teachers as we do with the kids. We have to learn a new way to do this. The future depends on how we learn to do it. There's a, enough gurus around to tell you what it's going to be, but you know, COVID-19 is just a, um, one thing to come and say, you know, well, things are going to be different. But without COVID-19, we still face the same problem. Hmm. So that um, it, it's, it's a paradox. I, I talked to our, I did a thing with our new leaders the other week, and I said, you, know, you have to understand that you're dealing with a paradox here that you're going to get more control by giving it away. That's a contradiction in terms. The, the current model is 
you get more by taking greater control. And, you know, you see governments on cycles, you know. We've all been through them, you know. That's In New it. South Wales, they've just admitted that local autonomy uh, was a dud, it didn't work. And we told them it wouldn't work when they implemented it. But, you know, now they've walked away from it. But given all those cycles, and it's understandable why teachers get sort of browned off and frazzled, but rather than getting browned off and frazzled, like what can you do in your classroom that shows you you've worked with kids and negotiated a, a learning experience for them? Uh, uh, the schools that we have, uh, they're all on some part, part of this journey, they're all on fire with learning. The, the, yeah. the, um, the staff absolutely love the freedom and the fact that I've got some great stuff from our staff and say, look, this is one of us rejuvenated me and, and like all the things like time and melt into um, into its significance. So I'm not dismissing them. I'm, I'm very realistic. We have to deal with the whole, the things that come up and I'm not interested as some people would say, uh, let's, we've got lightning here Parramatta, I think God's talking to us. Yeah, that's all right. That's that's a that's a that's a prelude to my next question, Greg, if I can. And and it's interesting hearing you talk about local autonomy in that way because I've watched and attempted to support New South Wales uh, government schools go into local autonomy, and it was just a disaster because it the, the, there was no scaffolding around it, there was no support, really preparation, there was no work with culture, no training. It's a here you go and manage yourselves, and and then yet at the same time you look at how it was done in New Zealand. And it was done in an exemplary fashion. Then New Zealand state schools thrive in with, with, with their autonomy and do it really, really well. So at the end of the day, the ideas that we have, you know, perhaps it's how we do it. I, I want to pick up on what you were talking about towards the beginning of the story about, about religion. Um, and, and again, if you can bear with me for a couple of minutes as I set this up. I spent most of my career working in faith-based schools. Um, I've got a faith basis. Adriano does, you do. I, I, I want to be honest and say I have never seen a religious education program work properly in any school I've ever come across. It's it's the great emperor's new clothes around these sorts of things. You're sitting there with your team and trying to reimagine what religion looks like. And to do that, we have to think differently and move away from that control mindset, that status quo mindset that says, if this is a really important thing, and I think it's I think it's a really, really important thing, we should do it properly. And we should we should, we should say, well, that model doesn't work. We need to try this again. While we've been preserving the status quo, Australia has lost touch with its sense of faith and its sense of religion. And if we go to the census right now, um, and the census data on that right now, suddenly we've gone to a situation where the majority of Australians indicate that they don't have a faith basis of any sort anymore. And yet the church going or the, or the service attending population of Australia has stayed at 15%. It's been stable along the way. So what we've done is we've lost the heart of Australia while we've sat and maintained this and, and attempted to maintain the status quo. So I want to go further than just talking about studies of religion or, or religious education in faith-based schools. I want to talk about the, the relevance of faith-based schools. And of course, in, in your respect, you've, you've got experience around Catholic schools. What is the relevance of faith-based schools in an increasingly secular society like Australia? You're trying to get me sacked here, Phil. <laughs> we have no mortgage over values, right? There are great non-faith-based schools who do a great thing about values, right? And, and too often, um, you know, we argue that, you know, our values based. So, so what's our point of dif difference? The, the way I approach it here is, you know, and that's the touchstone, Vatican II, 
came and came and what Vatican II was gave us the gospel. The gospel and the gospel, as you know, means good news. And it's good news for everyone. And it's it's countercultural. It calls for the radical preferential option for the poor and the marginalized. So where we should be is where the poor and the marginalized are. Right? That's our that's sort of our, our territory. Do we do it well? Well, you know, it, it's a work in progress, it's a journey, which feeds into that whole view of our, our learning and teaching is that this is the good news. Every child should experience good news. So if you want a metric, even, you know, is every child getting the best possible learning experience that they can have? Because that's what the gospel says. That's our point of reference, our anchor point, if you like, of a Catholic, being a Catholic school. We're, we're very fortunate here. We have a bishop who uh, is so supportive of this and keeps reminding me of this. And he said to me just recently, he said, um, we're talking about Catholic schools and enrolments. Uh, yeah, we enrol anybody who, who wants to come along. We exist for Catholics, but, you know, we have Sikhs and Muslims and probably even atheists in, in our schools. Uh, because the bishop says, we don't have our schools because they are Catholic. We have the schools because we are Catholic, because we're responsible to spread that good news. So that's the basis, and that's why we're doing the RE curriculum. But can I say that, um, again, I was explaining to the bishop yesterday in the work we're doing with our, if you want to say, secular curricula, um, we're taking that same approach that we've done in the RE into that design of how we're trying to then redo the, um, well, not redo, I've got to be careful here, we're not breaking NESA rules and all those sort of things, but how you can then engage the, the kids more deeply because you're so right, Phil, there should be no differentiation between what they're learning. It, it's not, we, we're moving from a model where religious education was external and was seen as another subject that you did and timetable and you had a religious education coordinator, you know, the whole thing. So virtually you had this construct that had no meaning because it didn't touch the doing part. And that's, the, that's why the leading. So it's in the doing. If you're saying it's the gospel is, is your anchor point and that everything go, that goes with the, the, the gospel, you know, starting from the fact that, you know, um, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, give everything away. And do think you want to new wine? Uh, there are so many messages in the gospel to do things differently. That we're on very safe ground in terms of delivering on what we're required to to do in being in Catholic school. You know, the, the the facts you're right are you know um, let's say even if it's fifteen percent Catholics practicing out of a million or five four million, however many there are in last sentence last census. You've got to ask yourself the question, who's got the problem? Uh, we focus on the 85%. They've got a problem because they're not buying into it. Well, maybe it's the 15% who've got the problem. So um, it calls for a, a really rethink. And certainly I'd hope we've moved beyond making judgments about success for the Catholic schools by the numbers of bums on seats. Yeah, That's not what we're about. And um, we welcome a diverse um, society goes back to the COVID thing where we have diverse, we're fortunate that we've got public schools, we're fortunate that we've got Islamic schools and Catholic schools, 
we should see it like that. And we've each got something to learn from each other about that very single thing. And, and our central points around the values, the value of the child and the respect and dignity of the individual. The thing we use here is our sort of motto is comes from John, John 10, 10. I have come that you'll have life and have it in its full. That's, that's what we want for every one of our kids and our teachers and our schools. I'm just going to just jump in there because I think that's really powerful. I, I love hearing people who lead systems talk about diversity being our strength, yeah. you know, and, and that's fundamentally what it is. And, and that, that particular passage from John that you mentioned there, it just continues to remind me of a saying that I always say and feels very conscious of what I say about this around the fact that every young person in our community is home to a life. And, and you know, and, and we need to we need to cherish that and, and support that. Talking about young people, I want to now just shift the conversation to one of our student members from A School for Tomorrow. His name's Samuel Chung. He, he had an outstanding deputy principal when he was in high school. I, no, no prejudice there, of course. But now he, he and I had a great conversation recently uh, around how do we equip younger generations today for this, this world that's in a constant state of flux. And he asked, why, why didn't he learn about cybersecurity in response to the fintech revolution? Or why didn't he learn about sustainable energy to offset climate change? Or how, how do we create genetic, genetically modified food to deal with the overpopulation? All those type of things. So he's a young man that's deeply curious, which I love and which we should continue to foster. My question to you, though, in relation to this conversation I had with him is, why are schools and systems still wedded to teaching just the past and not enough of today and tomorrow that is relevant, personalised and intentionally purposeful? Oh, God, there's so many, so many responses to that. The simple one is I don't know why they don't do it. The, the, the problem comes for me around this extrinsic nature of, the, the, of how we see the curriculum. I see the current curriculum in New South Wales, a classic example. We just had a major review, the first since um, Excellent Equity in 1988. Um, goes to the minister, recommends, you know, some of the things that we've been talking about, untimed syllabuses, mm -hmm. uh, you know, focus on the student learning, a 10-year rolling so we can work with the teachers and help them learn new ways. Goes to the minister, the minister says, no, that's rubbish. We're going to rewrite the English Math Science syllabus in, uh, in two years. So it all goes out the window. So that's the political dimension. And all they are, are ideological. She's a national party rep. Uh, they want to be strong on education, seem to be strong on education, and then they're just going to you know, do what, and what happens. But you know, the answer, we're trying to embed all those sorts of things uh, into the learning framework. And I want to say this. One of the interesting things when we talk to schools and we've got examples where this happened, given even the, the NESA requirements here in New South Wales, they're only minimums. We've got some schools who actually try and work through and, and they can get through the NESA minimums within two or three days, which frees up the time. That's how they're freeing up the time. And that's when they're starting to do these sorts of things in integrated learning programs. Like, um, Adriana, the, some of those questions you asked, they're the questions that the kids were asking in the RE. Right, yeah. You know, why, you know, why the, one of the, the most why, why why don't people understand that the global warning, why is it such a fight? Mm. Right? They're the questions. So that's how the, the basket, we're trying to put our eggs in to get schools to do that. Sure, we've got to meet the minimum requirements, but they are only minimum. Sure, we've got to deal with NAP plan and, you know, well, 
danger scene, you know what I think of those things. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm a realist enough to know that uh, I'm not going to get rid of them because there's no votes in, uh, out in the general public about you know, oh, you're soft on education, it's like soft on crime. When, when elections come around, we need more teachers, we need more nurses, we need more policemen. That's, that's how you get elected. There's substantive issues um, and have been played out in New South Wales by Barry McGraw. The politicians don't listen to the experts. One of the successes of the COVID thing was that the politicians listened to the... Um, yeah, the health experts. If you want the counterpoint, go to England. And mm -hmm. Boris told everybody what to do and look what happened in mm -hmm. the United States. So they ignored the thing. Unless we, we actually honour and respect those, you know, those things, we, we won't be able to do it. But the, the time is there. Huh? There's no excuse. The time is there and they have to be dealt with. But you just got to find that way to do it. And we can't do it centrally in the, uh, because the, all the schools are different. Greg, Greg, I want to follow you up on that notion of finding the way. And, and, and can I say it's wonderful at last that we've got a history teacher on this program who actually makes sense. Because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's great. I, it's, I was just I, about to say that, Phil, but yeah, go on. I, look, I just, there's no way I was going to let you get there first, Prado. Um, look, I think that um, I, I want to take you back a little, little bit into the history of, of or, or just in the history of history curriculum for a moment, because I know that both you and I have had involvement in writing curriculum and developing curriculum in, in the great state of New South Wales. As a student in the 1980s and then as a young teacher, was I was confronted by the absolute truth that was presented that if we didn't learn the French Revolution, um, we couldn't possibly develop an understanding of the past. Then we attached ourselves to World War One as the causes the, of the First World War, Phil. That's it. The cause of the First World War and the trenches and the discovery of the Australian identity and so on. And I, I should I, I should warn my PhD thesis is all why that isn't the Australian identity, but it's a perceived sort of thing. Um, but I think there is something within us as well as within systems that inclines us towards clinging to that which we know, because everything that we're talking about here is about taking a step off into uncharted waters, or if they're not uncharted, we, we don't have a precise map for them. And if you're not interested in the adventure of education, instead, if, you, if you're interested in the routine and the doing of things so that you can then do more things subsequently, then you get caught into that place. One of the things that I think a system like yours can do is help free teachers up to do the sort of thinking that will sit there and go, it's 2020. Do we really need to be asking every modern history student to talk about events between 1914 and 1918? Is that really the central event that forms and shapes Australian life uh, a century on from that? How do we use systems to help free up teachers in their thinking? Again, one of the things I say to our leaders, and I've already mentioned paradox, is the, the, the and I wrote to all our leaders at the beginning of the year in the first week, just as, you know, as, as I normally do, but I probably took a different tack. I said, look, you know, I, I want to deal with this issue of uncertainty. It comes up all the time, you know, and, and where COVID again just makes it in the forefront. But I said, Let's not this year be afraid of uncertainty because what, each year we, when we engage with our system leaders, we get together about 500 and this time we, we did it virtually. We, some, we mostly used to do it um, when we could do it physically. And we, we talk about, you know, what's the, the lens that we're going to look at um, the work we do this year? And 
over the last through couple of years in nine in eighteen in two thousand eighteen we had curiosity um, in nineteen nineteen we had clarity I oh, know I've got the dates wrong clarity was term twenty twenty this year is challenge so you can see we just you know there's a sequence there that allows us to talk in, in that that framework and develop a narrative around that so we can see a continuity. Um, and given there was a um, challenge, you know, so we're putting it out there, um, let's see and, and start to answer the, some of the questions that we've been going through. But I said, you know, the issue of uncertainty, and we get worried about uncertainty, but I said, it's not a curse, it's a gift. Mm -hmm. I said, see, let's see this as a gift. Here's an opportunity, we're saying collectively, here's an opportunity to do things differently. So you have to accept in, in the work that you do all the fuzziness. And the second word I use to talk about paradox, the second word, word I use is about ambiguity. Uh, in, in a lot of it's amb ambiguous because, you know, um, I sometimes do in presentations, I use a, a Monet painting of the Cathedral of Rouen. In Northern, I don't know if you've ever seen it. So they're, they're, it's a whole series, but it starts in the morning and the evening. But in the morning, you can only see various shapes and colours. You know, there's something there, but you don't know what it is. And the closer you get, the more tangible it becomes. But then in the afternoon, you look at it differently. And that seems to me to be a good metaphor for this uncertainty, because we'll never know all the things we need to know. We'll never be precise about all the things we need to know. And there'll be multiple opinions about that. So the, the answer is that you, you need to if you're not in that space, I don't know that you can learn it, but that's what we need in, in the doing of the work. So um, our, uh, my approach to that is to try and ensure that we, the message is there, that you know, this is an opportunity rather than um, a problem to be addressed in, in some other systemic way, because it'd be played out in each and every local community. My final question to you, Greg, before I hand it over to, to Phil to wrap up this uh, really uh, insightful conversation, is that schools can no longer operate exclusively in their local context. And, and a sense of connectedness needs to go beyond kind of our ability to just simply use the internet and the latest technologies. And, and you touched upon this earlier, that we exist because of each other. How can we better prepare young people to identify and confront the problems they care about the most? and collaborate beyond the classroom walls in the context of their local, their regional, and their kind of global perspectives. Ultimately, I suppose my question is, how can schools work to build a better world? Look, the, the model has to change. Right? It's as simple as that. Um, every industry sector that I can name, globally or local, it's different than it was 15 years ago because we had the industry sector designed to find the user experience. So if you want to go to a bank, do banking, you had to go into a bank that was only open these number of days, you had to have a passbook. If none of those things happened, you didn't get any money. It was as simple as that. Were people happy? No, they weren't, but that's what banks did because that's what they could do. What's happened now? All that's gone. So we've yep. moved from the industry driving the customer experience to the customer driving the industry experience. And then it's played out in the music industry, the travel industry, the food industry. They have also restaurants now on wheels. Oh, you name it. And then it's all about the customer. And what happens with the Amazons and the Googles of the world, 
where you have platforms now that will give you data, not only is the customer driving it, they're telling you what you can do to actually get a better experience. Mm-hmm. So if you think about education, is it anything like that? We're still stuck in a model where we think that the industry is going to drive the user experience. And this is the answer to the first question, or the question about going into the future, is what I do know is the customer is going to start driving the learning experience and the schooling experience. It's already happening. They're voting with their feet. They're going offline. They want to, they want to do things differently. We've got micro-credentialing. We've got universities doing, doing things differently. So we're in this liminal time, this, this time in between, because what's happening now is the fundamental shift is that the user, the customer will drive the experience. If you don't provide the, the experience, what are they going to do? They'll walk away. So, now, so that's a generic thing that needs to be played out, but that is the reality I see, not just from, from a personal view of what I think. It's what's happened in the world. And that, you know, you, the technology is the, the classic example. In 2000, Steve Jobs took the word technology off. It used to be Apple technology. And he took it, he just said, called it Apple. He said, because they're now in the lifestyle business. So they turned the movies, the music industry on its head uh, and, and that it's a lifestyle issue and it's killed all the things that used to be there. Now, video stores, yeah, you, you just keep naming them mm-hmm. and they're dead. They're dead in the water. And that's my fear for schools if they don't. And if, if some do and some don't, we go back to the original proposition that, you know, how do you do, how do you think that that's the differentiation between the equity issue? So there we go, game changers. We're at a situation where we have to confront some realities around this, aren't we? We have to be thinking about all of those well-worn platitudes about student-centred learning and asking ourselves, are we really doing that? Are we really putting the students in control of their learning and supporting them along the way? We've heard from Greg today talk to us about the importance of understanding where schools need to be positioning themselves, where teachers need to position themselves at the point of need and taking the opportunity of the ambiguity and the uncertainty and taking that big step forward. And on behalf of Adriana and I really want to say thank you, Greg, for the opportunity to have a chat with you today and to learn from you. Uh, There's so much in everything that you're talking about where you are doing it, not just talking about it, But when you do talk about it, my goodness, do you make a lot of sense and get all of us thinking. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you for the work that you are doing and that your colleagues are doing there in uh, in the Parramatta Diocese. As someone born in Roosters Territory, talking to someone who's living in the the shadows of Belmore Oval and the Doggies Territory, it's been a privilege to share some time with you today. So thank you very much. I am singularly honoured. Um, sincerely, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I don't often sometimes to get to be able to give such a spray, but uh, <laughs> so thank you and thanks for your support. That's that's how we're going to move it forward. It's yeah. a dialogue, and it's, we just need a more powerful narrative. But we need a more powerful narrative to replace the one that we've had for the last one hundred years. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.